Well, some of you know, and if you knew, you may not know, this is a good time to tell you uh, what our church has been doing this year. Uh, We've been reading through the Bible together, and all of the readings that you see in the handout here, and even this scripture that I'm preaching from this morning, has come from the prior week's readings that we've been doing together. It's been that way every week, all year. We plan to keep doing that for the rest of the year. And the reason you want to know that now is that if you aren't reading along, we just finished the book of Judges. And uh, if you've read along, you know this. It was tough, right? It's a a hard read. Uh, It feels like uh, that time that you tried out HBO and didn't know how raunchy it was and said, ooh, no, th- why, why am I reading this? Like, right, this, the, like, why did God put this in the scriptures? There are stories there that we wonder why God put them in the Bible. Uh, for instance, we were talking in Sunday school this morning how strange it is that God would choose Samson to lead his people so mightily and that he would then be taken with the prostitute who is part of the enemy camp and get manipulated by her into basically giving the farm away. And you get to the end of a story like that, and you're thinking, what, why is that there? What, what's God doing there? Uh, it gets even worse. Later on, there are mobs who are fighting over who gets to have a silver idol and who gets to have this false priest so that they can both be blessed on the wicked things that they're trying to do. Uh, later on, a concubine gets treated so horribly, and when it's over, she's chopped up into pieces and FedExed out to all the cities in Israel, and we're just thinking, God, why is this in your word? By the end of it, civil war is threatened and, and looms. And I got to tell you, many years I've read through that myself and, and thought, like many of us think, what's, why is this in our Bibles? Uh, this year, as I look at how crazy the world around us is becoming in many ways, I feel like it's, it's helpful in explaining what's going on around us. Uh, it's easier to connect to stories like that when the headlines are as crazy as they are right now. Uh, when we read in the newspapers of a people who have Uh, And and I mean us, the church in the States, having unrivaled access to God's word, uh, but entering into a downward spiral because we won't take God's word to heart. And so our culture and our religion just hits this downward spiral. And all these troubling trends come for us, which for us, it's, you know, mass shootings and conspiracy theories and all kinds of difficult stuff. And all of a sudden, the downward spiral in Judges starts to make sense. This is what happens when people have God's word and, and they don't take it to heart. Uh, when we read about just terrible crimes that have been committed in our world uh, against women, uh, and we read about the mobs of social media and the sort of intellectual civil war that's going on right now, uh, some of those mobs in the book of Judges and some of those terrible stories in the book of Judges start to make more sense. And when we read about leaders who were deeply flawed personally, Uh, and were very arrogant, and yet people attached themselves to those leaders because they felt like there wasn't really anybody else around to step up and lead them. Uh, I could be talking about us in the States, or I could be talking about the judges in Israel, and you almost wouldn't know the difference. Uh, That time period for Israel, Israel went through a lot of these things to help us understand the world around us. The, The exile helps us understand the world in other ways, and all those time periods help us to understand the world around us. The book of Judges is showing to us what it's like when a people have access to God's word and, and don't take it to heart. And that's what we're seeing in the breakdown around us. Now, I say all of that because this week we finished the book of Judges and we got to read the short book of Ruth, which is like this glimmer of hope. It takes place during the same period, but God starts 
that's working very powerfully, and there's promise to a future. Now we are early in 1 Samuel, which takes place during the judges' period, but it shows how God began to work to take Israel out of that ugly period and into perhaps the greatest phase of her history under King David and under King Solomon. And the profound thing about it is that God does this not through a mighty judge with a great sword and not through Jael and her awesome tent peg and all these incredible things we read about. He does it through a very humble, broken, and weeping woman who would be, in the eyes of the world, perhaps the very last person that God would use to take Israel from the terrible state they're in into a new great and shining era. And so we're going to read this morning the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. And what I, begin it, uh, what I hope it begins to show us is the sort of people that God loves to use to perhaps take us out of the cycle that we are in as a nation and as an American church and all the difficulty around us. It is surprising the sort of people that God may choose to use in a strange time like that. Let's look together at 1 Samuel 1. We'll read the first 20 verses together. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephathrite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And then Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah said, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. And therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a wounded, troubled, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. 
And then Eli answered, go, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And then she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The words of the Lord. We have in these words an amazing example of God's favor toward the lowly when they look to him. And the story is so profound that I think it could speak to your life in so many different ways. Uh, perhaps calling you for the very first time to take your anguish to the Lord God and lay it before him. Or calling you to do so again after having done so many times. Or very differently for others of us, calling us away from pride and self-reliance and our attempts to change the world through strength to instead give our faith to the Lord and let him do what he will with it. And perhaps we could even be bold enough to ask that God would use one of us in this room through our faith in the same mighty way that he used Aunt Hannah in those days in Israel. Now, as you zoom in, this is very clearly a story about a woman who wants a baby and gets one, right? And it would be tempting to think that that's all that this story is, but you zoom out in Israel's history, and this is the story of how God begins to change Israel for good, right? They are in this terrible period of their history, the judges period, we call it, in this, you know, it's sort of a cycle where they keep bouncing around from idolatry to being oppressed, to crying out to God, to being delivered, and then falling back into idolatry, and just going around and around again, like this downward spiral. And God uses these days to bring them out of that state they're in and into a wonderful new era under King David, and then under King Solomon. This is the story of how he begins to do that. He will do it through this prophet, priest, and final judge named Samuel. And this is the story of how that Samuel is born. So it's more than a story about a woman who wants a baby and gets one. It's a story about the sort of person that out of all of Israel, God is pleased to work through. What are the sort of people that God is pleased to favor? What are the sort of people that God is pleased to work through? That's people like Hannah, and we have a model of faith in her. So what we'll do this morning is first we'll look at all of the reasons that Hannah might be tempted to think that God does not favor her, or that she is perhaps even useless to God. Then we'll look at how she handles it in faith. And then at last, we'll look at the favor that God shows to her. Let's look first at just some of the heartbreaking details of Hannah's life, many of which I think we will connect with, some of which we'll have a hard time imagining. Uh, one hardship in her life that sticks out very quickly and is repeated several times is that the Lord has closed her womb. She has no children. And this by itself is a pain that some of us in the room even, even know and can say, yeah, I, I know what that feels like. That hurts. It doesn't matter what era you're from. It doesn't matter if you're in the ancient age or if you're here now. Uh, it is painful. 
Hannah is carrying around this pain with her every day and everywhere she goes. Now, when I talk to women who are suffering this very thing, um, it often becomes difficult socially as well. It becomes very hard to go to your friend's baby showers and watch your friends rejoice when you're pleading with God to give you children and he has not given you children. It becomes very difficult to go to church on Mother's Day when you see many celebrating the children God has given them. Uh, But you don't get to celebrate that yourself. You look up to your mom and, and that's all you've got. Hannah suffers even worse than this, though, because beyond that internal pain, those people in her life are turning on her and reviling her. It's one thing to have a hard time watching your friend succeed and have children. Another thing if that friend turns on you and reviles you for your childlessness, and this is what Hannah faces. We, we see first that her husband chooses to take a second wife so that he can have children, Uh, We get those from the details in the story. Hannah is introduced as the first wife, and uh, Peninnah is introduced as the second wife, right? And we know that her husband loves Hannah, so we have enough to know why he took a second wife. Why did he take a second wife? So that he could have kids. So now she has to share her husband with this other woman. And to make matters worse there, adding insult to injury there, it works, and we read of all her sons and daughters. So this is a woman who has given birth to many children for him while Hannah just watches and weeps over it year after year. As if that were not enough, the other wife called her rival, if that gives you any idea of how bad an idea it is to to resort to polygamy to have children, her rival uses this opportunity to try to get an advantage over her and to provoke her, to revile her, to tease her over this. So on top of all of this pain, she is putting up with this other woman who she at least lives near, if not with, saying, oh, well, I'll bring my children here. Why don't you bring your children? Oh, that's right. You don't have any children because God hasn't given you any children. Just, Just daggers to the heart that this woman is giving her. Pain upon pain upon pain. So we've got her internal pain from that she is suffering through and the external social pain of others mistreating her and reviling her because of the state that she is in. Another hardship she faces is that she has leaders who are failing her. Um, a, A wife who is suffering through infertility needs a sensitive and patient husband to lead her through that time, even if it's for her whole life. Elkanah, her husband, uh, does seem well-meaning and does love her, um, but we've already talked about how he sins against her by taking a second wife, right? And when she is provoked and teased by this other wife, he does nothing to protect her, so he just leaves her vulnerable to this, failing to protect her. And all of this really comes to a head in verse 8 when he tries miserably to comfort her and shows his insensitivity in the whole situation. Let's look at verse eight together. He says to her, husbands, just be warned. He says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And here's the kicker. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? So husbands, first of all, this is free. No, you are not. You are not worth more to her than 10 sons. Um, 
Your wife desires to be loved and led by a good man, and you can be that. Her desire for children is a different pole, a different desire that is uniquely shaped and cannot be filled by other things. If the Lord does not fulfill that desire, you can't make up for it by buying her more shoes or a new car. You can't make up for that by loving her extra. That's just a desire she has, and if the Lord does not meet it, the Lord does not meet it. He demonstrates this insensitivity here just by being completely clueless to what her needs are as a woman. Now, we can learn a lot about his failed leadership as husbands. Husbands, protect your wives in ways that things aren't working out. Don't look to other women to be satisfied. Uh, understand your wife and be sensitive to her. We can learn lessons like that. And husbands, if you need that, dig into the story and dig into his failed leadership to, to learn that. Perhaps we could even talk about that. But that's not the point. The point is how hard this is for Hannah, right? She has to hear these words from her husband. And on top of the insensitivity... They have a stinging irony to them because she was obviously not worth more than 10 sons to him because he took a second wife to have children. And then he's got the nerve to say to her, am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? So on top of all of her personal pain and all of those who are mistreating her, her husband just doesn't understand and seems well-meaning enough, but is comforting her with incredibly insensitive words that just do not help. Another thing that a woman in this situation needs is a tender and wise spiritual leader, in this day a pastor, and that day a priest, because the priests had the role of opening the law and teaching it, much like I'm doing right, right now. But her priest, there in the temple, there she is doing the right thing, right, taking it to the Lord, and her priest mistakes her for a drunken woman and scolds her publicly in the temple. It doesn't get much worse than this, does it? Like, can we think of anything worse to do, any more worse things we can do to poor Hannah here? She brings her problem to the Lord, and we read of Eli's misjudgment in verse 13. She's speaking in her heart. Her lips are moving. Her voice is not heard. And Eli mistakes this for drunkenness when she's pouring out her heart to God. And he even scolds her. He said, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, personally, I don't think this is a rebuke on Eli's character. I think it's more about what he's been dealing with in the temple, that he would immediately jump to that conclusion because he's probably seeing that a lot in that day. But we'll read about Eli's problems later. At the very least, he's misjudged Hannah and has not helped her at all at this point as a leader. So here is this dear woman suffering through childlessness after many years, enough years for this rival wife to produce many children, mistreated by others, uh, has an insensitive husband who does not have the leadership to care for her, and her priest is failing her as well. Few of us can relate to that level of suffering, but there she is, and our hearts go out to her. This all becomes so bad that we read in verse 5 that she has a double portion put in front of her at the feast, and in verse 7, that she still can't even eat it. 
Now, that may take a little bit of explaining because some of you may read that and think, wait a minute, if it's a sacrifice, why are they eating it? It sounds more like Thanksgiving dinner, right? What's, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that sacrifices in the Old Testament were often like that. You would often offer an animal to the Lord. It would be cut up. You would cook much of it, and you would eat a lot of it in the presence of the Lord, almost like we do Thanksgiving dinner. And then the rest of it, you would either burn or in some other way give to God. The Passover feast worked like that. A lot of other ones do too. We don't know which feast this was. But many of these feasts looked a lot more like our Thanksgiving dinners or our Easter dinners than you might expect. And so you can almost expect it's Thanksgiving and let's say your spouse has taken all of the preparations for Thanksgiving this time. You're not doing anything to prepare for it. You come and you see the table set and everyone's place is set with a paper plate and some plastic silverware and one good cut of meat and a side and a glass of water. And the only one different is your seat, which has your name on it and has a china plate, silver utensils, a nice glass with whatever your favorite soda or whatever is in it, two of the very best cuts of the turkey, a double portion of sides, and apple pie. Now, there's two good blessings there, right? One, some of you are like, all right, I'm ready to go home and have lunch, right? Like, yum, right? That's part of the blessing. But part of this is that this is in front of everybody, and so he's honoring her by giving her this double portion. You sit down, and the stuff in front of you is better than everybody else's. Your spouse has just honored you in front of everyone, and that would be warming to your heart. Well, Hannah receives that. She gets a double portion put out for her by her husband in front of the other wife, in front of all the other kids. Here's some honor. She sits down, and she is so heartbroken that she still can't even bear to eat it. And so she just weeps. Here's a, here's a double cut of meat, and it's got her tears all over it. And here's a, here's a cloth napkin when everyone else had paper, and it's got, she's just using it to wipe all the makeup off her face because she can't stop crying. This is, this is a woman for whom the good things in life have just lost their taste because she is just so heartbroken over the hardship that she has faced. You may be able to relate to some of her sufferings. You may be feeling some of it right now. You may be able to relate to all of it or maybe none of it. But whatever it is we can connect with, with her. What we have to do next is look at how she responds and say, okay, what's instructive for me? How will the Lord teach me through the ways that she handles her hardships? And that's where we go next. Let's look at her great faith. The three ways we see her faith demonstrated. And I'll just name them all three for you if you're a a note taker. First, she brings her heart to the Lord and then her request to the Lord and then she gives all of God's gifts back to him. We'll look through those one at a time. In verses 10 and 13 and in a few other places too, you can see how she brings Not just the problem to the Lord, but her very heart to God. Let's look at verse 10 together. It says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And this is all just kind of mushed up together here, right? So this is not a prayer just of words. This is a prayer of bitter tears and hardship brought right before God there in the altar. In verse 13, we read a little more. She's speaking just in her heart. So she's not talking out loud. 
Uh, Her lips are moving, though, so it probably looks a little silly, and her voice is not heard. So there she is at the altar, probably kneeling, we might guess. Uh, Her lips are moving. Her tears are going down her face. Her moving lips are probably sending tears everywhere, not exactly looking dignified, but certainly full of emotion before God. And we see even later as she answers to Eli in verse 16, actually, I'm sorry, in verse 15, towards the end of it, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So this is a woman who is taking not just the problem to God, but just letting her heart loose in front of God, right? She just turns on the faucet and says, here you go. Here's, here's everything for you, God. And this is instructive for us, especially those of us that grew up here in the States where, if we're honest, we really just have no idea what to do with our feelings anymore. If, if you're not from the States, if you're one of our international brothers, uh, one thing you might need to know about us here in the States is that we are very confused when it comes to our feelings. Um, on one hand, we are trying to let our feelings rule us, right? And we preach, like, follow your heart and do whatever your heart wants, do whatever you feel, right? And on the other hand, we're trying to pretend like our feelings don't exist. And, and this is the sea that we Americans have been swimming in or trying to figure out through. So when we are grieving and we look like we don't know how to grieve, just, just know that that's a product of being raised how we are. By contrast, one of our international families had a funeral some time ago that I went to, and I just remember thinking to myself, I wish I knew how to grieve like these people know how to grieve, right? But here we are, most of us, not really knowing how to bring our tears and our feelings before God, and we have a model in Hannah. Sometimes when we are pressed down by sorrows, we just need to go to the Lord and not just tell him the problem, but tell him how we feel about it. And sometimes tears need to flow. Sometimes when you think of that person who wronged you 10 years ago and it still really bugs you, we need to take that to the Lord and say, God, I'm still so mad about that. Right? It, it is good and it is right to take not just your problems, but your heart to the Lord. If you want more models of this, just open through the Psalms and flip through them. You won't get through very many before you find somebody just pouring their heart out to the Lord, and all of us would take instruction from it. Some of us are thinking now about that thing that weighs us down in sorrow, or that person who wronged us so long ago that we're still mad about, or that thing that's going on that stresses us out. And for a lot of us right now, the big take-home, the big model that Hannah gives us is we just need to go home this afternoon close the door and just let our feelings loose before God, to just put them before him and bring our heart to God. That's the first model of Hannah's faith. She is not ashamed to bring her emotions and her whole heart before God. We see secondly, toward the beginning of verse 11, that she does bring a very concrete request before God. And this is an act of faith as well. Let's look at verse 11 together. She vows a vow and she goes on a bit, and towards the end, it's, or towards the middle, it says, but if you will give your servant a son, there's a very specific request, right? So she is not saying, oh, Lord, you have still closed my womb, and it still bothers me, the end, right? It's good that she would have said that, but she says a little more. She's got a request to bring to God. And this is part of what faith looks like, even in our sorrows, to not just tell them the problem, but to ask for what we want, Oftentimes we forget in our prayers just the simple core of the whole thing, which is that we went there to ask for things, right? That's what we're there for. Uh, That's what children get to do for their parents. They get to ask things of their parents. Uh, 
That's the difference between uh, when you're praying through a prayer list, for instance, and you see all the updates that are on there. Sometimes it's hard to convert that into a request. So you might read, uh, I'm just going to pick on Rob here, you might read Rob Bailey going to Houston soon, um, and you might say, okay, Father, I lift up Rob Bailey to you who's going to Houston soon, the end, right? Now, what's missing from that? A request. God wants to hear our requests. There's a difference there than saying, Father, as, as Rob goes to Houston, would you give him safe travels? Would you bring him back here? And would you bring him into this time where he has to go down there all the time? But would you bring full healing to his body? There's a request. And there is something about God's character that says, I love to hear your requests. He loves when we ask him for things. Other times we feel like we can't ask for things. Like it wouldn't be good to ask for that. Um, I talked to a friend one time uh, who called me on the phone. She was, she was torn up about what was going on in her life. She was a grandmother of one grandchild, and her daughter was pregnant with her second grandchild. And they had just been to a doctor's appointment where the doctor told them uh, that the baby would probably make it through the whole pregnancy but had no chance of surviving outside the womb. So this baby would, at best case scenario, be delivered, draw a few breaths, and, and would die in its mother's arms. And she's processing this, feeling, feeling a lot like Hannah. Um, and what she said was, you know, I just, I feel like because the doctors were so certain about this, like, you know, God's given his answer and I need to respect what God wants and not ask for what I want. I want the baby to live, but I feel like I can't ask for that. Um, and uh, I, I just said, ask for what you want. If, if that's what you want, ask God for it. Uh, and she did. And the Lord did not give her the answer she wanted. She watched the second grandbaby born, watched the second grandbaby die. Um, but the Lord didn't despise her for asking either. And, and this day, now she has two more grandbabies in her arms. Because uh, the Lord does not despise it when we bring our requests to him. Uh, unless it is a sinful thing to want, or unless you're not willing to hear God's answer, whatever it is, church, you can ask for whatever you want, no matter how far-fetched or crazy it seems. And if you want another model of this, just look to your Lord in the garden the night before he was crucified, who had the boldness to ask not to go to the cross. Church, if Jesus can ask not to go to the cross, you can ask your father for anything, and he will not despise the asking. Just like Hannah, following her model, we bring our request to God. The third model of faith we have in Hannah is that she gives all of God's gifts back. She receives them as gifts, but she gives them back. And this is what is happening in the rest of verse 11. She's asked for the son, and she says, If you will give me a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This isn't a bargain or a deal, right? God doesn't need anything, so you can't bargain with him. No, this is a heart that understands God's mysterious way of giving. That he does give good things. And yet, everything he gives us is still his. That's hard to hold in both hands, isn't it? This is the wisdom of a husband who receives his wife as a good gift from God and delights in her. And doesn't forget, she still belongs to God. And that affects how you treat her. And that means he can take her from you whenever he wants to. It's hard to hold both of those in the same hand. 
This is the wisdom of a parent who looks at their child or their children and says, what a gift from God. It was God who gave these children to me. And also remembers that the children still belong to God. And so when God calls them into ministry and they go to, we were just talking this morning about Argentina or when they go across or whatever the Lord does with them, he can do whatever he pleases with them. Receiving God's gifts and also remembering that the gifts belong to God. This is even the wisdom of the person who tithes, rightly. Uh, Tithing is a gesture where you give a tenth of what God has given you as a way of saying God has it all, right? It all belongs to God. And the one who does this rightly says God gave 100% of it to me, and 100% of it belongs to God, and so I will give 10% back to him as a gesture of the fact that he owns all 100% of it. Now, you do that, And now you're in a better position to use the other 90% wisely. And so, ironically, a lot of times you wind up doing better than the guy that kept his 10% and has all of 100%. This is the wisdom of Hannah who says, Lord, if you would give this son to me, I would give him to you, right? I receive gifts, but I know, Lord, that they are still yours. She would follow through with this. The way she would express it is just as she had here. Uh, The young boy would be set apart as a Nazarite from the beginning, never having a haircut or a beard trim his whole life, living in dedicated service to God, and even raised in the temple after he was weaned so that he could serve the Lord there. She only got to be with this boy for two years after he was born. So there's her faith. She brings her heart to God. She brings her request to God, and she gives all of God's gifts back to him. This dear and suffering woman models for us faith better than many characters in the scriptures. And we see that God favors her. It is faith like this that moves the Lord. We see in verse 17, Eli gives a favorable answer to her. He says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. As a priest, this may be some kind of like prophetic blessing. It may be the answer, or it may just be, you know, like a benediction, a well-wish. It's really tough to know. Uh, Whatever it is, though, it's given her comfort. She walks away. She's willing to eat now. Her face is no longer sad. In verse 19, they go home. And it says at the end of verse 19, the powerful words, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, she conceived and she bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The name Samuel means God hears. And God does hear. So we have then such a profound story of the sort of people that God loves to favor and loves to work through. Not the high and mighty, not the lofty, but the weak when we look to him in faith. Now, a first-time reader would know that the name of the book is Samuel, right? And so when they see this boy's name Samuel, they got enough to know, ooh, okay, this baby's a big deal, right? We know even more, right? We know that this is the boy who will grow up into one of the greatest prophets in Israel. He will be the last judge in Israel, and he'll be a righteous judge. 
And then he will anoint the first king and bring them out of the judge's area. He will serve the whole time also as priest. He's prophet, priest, and judge. It's amazing. He will do all of this faithfully, anointing the first king, holding that first king accountable when he fails, and then anointing Israel's second king and probably greatest king, King David. This is the boy that God will use to bring Israel out of that ugly cycle that it's in and into her greatest days. And the profound thing that we just can't lose sight of here is that of all the people in Israel, he would do it through this dear woman who looks to him in faith. That means that Hannah's faith is more valuable to God than Jephthah's sword. And it's more valuable to God than Samson's great strength. Her faith is more valuable to God even than Jael's tent peg and Deborah's boldness. Her faith is more valuable to God than Elkanah's wealth and more valuable to God than Peninnah's great fertility or Eli's high position of all of these things that we would expect God to change Israel for good with. It is Hannah's faith. Now that says a word to those of us who are trying to change the world through power, through position, through influence, or through gifting and skill. How does the Lord like to do it? Through the faith of the lowly. That's for the Lord, how the Lord likes to do it. So the point of the whole thing is that God favors the lowly when they look to him. To be clear, he does also favor the mighty when they look to him. When the apostle Paul, great and mighty as a Pharisee, turns and looks to the Lord, God favors him. The thing they have in common is when they look to him, God favors them. And that means two really profound things for us. First, maybe this has given you a glimpse into the incredible character of God. Can you see that he is so much greater than anyone has ever made him out to be? So much greater than the leaders around us and the world around us. And if we can look into his character here and see his love for people like Hannah, maybe we can look to him and say with honesty, he is worthy of so much more than I give him, right? He is worthy of so much better than how I live for him. He is worthy of so much more worship than I give him. And for some of us, that may be the realization that helps us to see that the gospel is real and we really do need it. Right now, it's one thing if we've sinned against a God who isn't a great God. It's another thing to sin against the incredible God who loves people like this. Now, if we could look to him and see his glory and say, I have sinned against this God, that may be what moves some of us to cry out to Jesus for salvation and say, I am in need of a God like this, of a Lord like this, who would love even me who has sinned against him. And perhaps if God is moving you that way, I just call you even now to place your faith in Jesus Christ who shed his blood to cover for all of the sins of those who would trust in him. This sort of faithful relationship with him can be yours through the blood of Jesus Christ if you would trust it. That's the first big application we could take from this. A God like that's worthy of our trust and we ought to trust him. It also means something profound for those of us who are trying to be the next Elon Musk or who are trying to be the next AOC or trying to be the next President Trump or trying to be the next Steve Jobs. Many of us are trying to be the world's next great leader, to be the one that changes the world, right? And I know those of you who are young have had that pressure put on you your whole lives to make a difference and have your impact. And I want you to see here that the path 
to be useful to God does not come in power and it does not come through whatever skill set God gave you. Nor will your path in life come from searching yourself and knowing all of your strengths and weaknesses. No, most of the heroes in the Bible fall into their destiny accidentally when they trust God in great faith. And young people, if you would be useful to God, you you do not need to search yourself and know yourself super well. What you need to do is trust the Lord in faith. And toward the end of your life, or maybe two centuries later, begin to see the impact he has had through faith like yours. Some of us are trying to be the next Elon Musk, and we need to be the next Hannah. May God raise up many Hannahs in this room today. Let's pray together.